The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled EGFR-Targeted Therapy for Early-Stage Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, What Thoracic Surgeons Need to Know. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GQW860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to this session on EGFR-targeted therapy for early-stage lung cancer, what thoracic surgeons need to know. I'm Jessica Donington. I'm a thoracic surgeon. I'm professor of surgery and chief of the section of thoracic surgery at the University of Chicago. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. My name is Kathy Hsu. Um, I'm an associate professor of medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. My main disclosure today is that I am not a surgeon. I am a medical oncologist, so thank you all still for inviting me to your lovely conference. Our basic agenda for today is to understand some of the gaps and opportunities regarding adjuvant therapy for resected non-small cell lung cancer. We'll go over some of the recent information on EGF-targeted therapies in this population, and then review some cases which highlight the importance of EGFR therapy in our patients. We'll have time for questions, and then time to go over all of this again at the end in a reflection. I think we'll start with a case. All right, so I'm going to start us off with a case. Um, just to be clear, you know, these are cases that do not have any clear answers, but Dr. Donington and I thought these were kind of good cases to help uh, with discussion. So um, the first case, she's a 64-year-old female. Um, she's a never smoker, and she presented really with uh, COVID-19, otherwise perfectly healthy woman. And she had a CT scan, and it showed a 3.4-centimeter left upper lobe mass. She had a PET scan, which demonstrated uh, a 3.0 centimeter left upper lobe mass, SUV of 5.3, pleura was normal, there was no mediastinal or hilar lymph node disease, and there was no distant disease. Uh, so she ended up getting a transbronchial biopsy of that left upper lobe mass, and it showed invasive adenocarcinoma. What happens is she has a next-generation sequencing panel performed on her biopsy, and it reveals an EGFR exon 19 deletion. So she's actually taken to the OR um, a week later, and she undergoes a left VATS upper lobe, uh, left upper lobectomy, and it was a 4.4-centimeter invasive adenocarcinoma, moderately differentiated, extending into the visceral pleura, and actually there were multiple lymph nodes involved, so two level 5, one level 7, and two bronchial lymph nodes. So she was ultimately staged as a PT2BN2. So I think this was a little bit of a surprise. Um, and now we will talk about some other data, and then we'll come back, and I'd, I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts about what we should do with this case afterwards. All right, so we're going to start by kind of trying to understand some of the gaps and opportunities for improvement of care of patients just like this. So lung cancer is clearly not one disease anymore. And especially within the realm of adenocarcinomas, we really know that this has become a disease that can be better heterogeneous and that we have a lot of these driver mutations which really control much of the biology of the disease. And for several of these uh, targets, we now have approved drugs. And the beauty of these agents is the majority of them uh, have greater efficacy and less toxicity than standard systemic chemotherapy. But it is a rapidly changing field, and there are new agents and new targets discovered all the time. 
By far, the one that we are most common with and have the longest history of is EGFR, the epidermal growth factor uh, receptor mutation. I think the first agents for these were introduced in 2005, and we've learned about it ever since. One thing we know about these mutations is that they definitely vary in prevalence by things like gender, smoking, history, and ethnicity. But one thing I think surgeons might not be aware of is that the prevalence doesn't really vary by stage, meaning that we see it in about 20 to 25% of stage four patients in the United States, but we see it in a similar number of early stage patients. We can't know about this mutation, we can't treat this mutation unless we find it. And finding it does require the step for biomarker testing. And in stage four patients, biomarker testing has been part of the lexicon of care for about the past five to seven years now. Yet this data shows us about how, how often this is done in a field where these biomarkers have been in place for a long time. And it is not consistent. And while most patients with stage four disease will get some biomarker testing, a minority actually get tested for all of the actionable mutations that are out there. And even a smaller percentage get next generation sequencing, those 1,200 gene panels that really look for all of their mutations. So in stage one, two, and three disease, our resectable patients, we don't really have data about how often this is done, but we have a really good idea that it's not done nearly as much as it is in stage four. We definitely have not put the workflows together and don't have the care pathways all worked out for this. But now it's more important than ever in our patients. Not upsetting, but something we have to kind of take uh, important notice of are the low rates of adjuvant therapy for our patients. So this is data from the VIOLET trial. The VIOLET trial is Eric Lim's trial from the UK that randomized resectable early stage patients to VATS or open procedures. He then looked within that population to say, of patients who were eligible for adjuvant therapy, how many got it? And the numbers are not so good. About half of the patients who were eligible for adjuvant therapy on trial in this went on to get their adjuvant chemotherapy. So where is this gap? Is this gap from surgeon to oncologist? Is it from oncologist to patient? Or is it the patients? It's probably some combination of all of that. But as surgeons, we can really be central in trying to change those problems. This is similar uh, data about the poor uptake of adjuvant from the Alchemist trial. So I'm sure some of you in the room may have put patients on the Alchemist trial. The first part of it was a screening trial. This group looked at the kind of 2,800 patients from Alchemist who did not go on to one of the other trials, and again, looked at the uptake of adjuvant chemotherapy. And again, not much better than the Violet trial. 57% of patients got some kind of chemotherapy, but really only 43% got four cycles, which is the normal recommendation. I think adequately scary on this slide is the data about an adequate lymph node dissection. So again, these are trial patients. These are the best of the best. These are the patients we you know, said, oh, I think I can put this on an NCI-designated trial, and yet only half of them really had what we would consider an adequate lymph node dissection. So what are the new updates in EGFR-targeted therapy for our resected patients? OK, so we're going to take the next few slides to actually walk through um, the ADORA trial. And um, this was a huge 
you know, huge breakthrough trial for all of us um, in oncology. And what it did, it took patients with completely resected stage 1B, 2, and 3A non-small cell lung cancer. And importantly, this is with or without adjuvant chemotherapy. So that was an investigator's choice. And they had to be, you know, kind of your normal things, good performance status, um, and confirmed non-small cell lung cancer, non-squamous, and they had to have one of your two classical EGFR mutations, either exon 19 deletion or L858R. Um, they had to have had a complete resection with negative margins, and then they were uh, stratified based on stage, EGFR mutation, and race, and then they were randomized. So they were randomized to either osimertinib at 80 milligrams once daily or placebo, and then the um, treatment was going to continue on for three years. And um, the primary endpoint was DFS, disease-free survival, in the stage 2 to 3A patients. Um, and secondary endpoints included um, DFS in the overall population, which then includes the 1B patients, and then DFS at 2, 3, 4, and 5 years. Um, importantly, and I'll show you some of these numbers, um, the study was actually unblinded early because of efficacy. Um, and at the time of the unblinding, the study had already completed enrollment and patients had been followed for at least a year. So remember, they have to get three years of osimertinib, but by the time they unblinded, they had already gotten one year. And um, this is the original data, the disease-free survival according to investigator um, assessment. On the left um, is stage two to three A, this one. And you can see that the uh, top, the blue curve, is the osimertinib curve, and the orange is the placebo curve. And you can see that what we oncologists like to say, you could drive a truck between those lines. Um, that means that the hazard ratio for a disease recurrence or death was 0 0.17, which is just a you know, really mind-blowing number for us. Um, so that means that that's an 83% reduction in risk of disease recurrence or death. On the right is the stage 1B to 3A uh, curves, and you can see similarly that they're very impressive. Um, here we include the stage 1Bs, and that hazard ratio is now 0 0.20, so an 80% uh, reduction in risk of disease, recurrence, or death. So both very impressive. We've just recently updated the data um, at uh, ESMO 2022. So you can see that the numbers are still very good. Um, the hazard ratio is now 0 0.23, and the osimertinib disease-free survival numbers are 65.8 months versus placebo at 21.9 months. Um, and the data is about 51% mature. So still looking really good. And again, the same thing we're seeing in the overall population, again, with that added 1B in. So the hazard ratio of that is 0 0.27, and the osimertinib DFS is 65.8 months. And you know, we're all hoping uh, for that, those overall survival numbers uh, to read out soon. But you know, this is what we have right now. And this is really important for me, because you can see in every single subgroup there's a DFS benefit, which is you know, just really impressive. So um, it didn't matter if you're a man or a woman, old or young, smoking or not smoker. Um, and then this part's important. Look at this. So the stage 1B was still significant, um, even though you kind of saw more of the efficacy here maybe in stage 3As. 
EGFR mutation, again, it didn't matter which type of EGFR mutation was still significant. Um, L858R classically does a little bit worse than exon 19 deletion, so this wasn't unexpected for me. And then this part's really important. This is something that I kind of tell all the fellows. The patients did better with osimertinib regardless of whether or not they received adjuvant chemotherapy. It doesn't tell us whether or not the patients who got adjuvant chemo did better than the patients who didn't get adjuvant chemo, but it tells us that Regardless of whether or not you received chemotherapy, the osimertinib still had um, a significant benefit. So um, you can see this is DFS by stage, and um, the stage 1B, uh, the hazard ratio is 0.44, and then the stage 2 and, the th and 3A are, are below. The stage 3A, you can see kind of the most bang for your buck, but we see um, good numbers even in the stage 1B. Although, as you know, as we all know, that in 1B the recurrences come a little later, so the um, that numbers may not be as significant yet. Now, um, when we look at this tornado plot, this this looks at patterns of disease recurrence in the overall population, and what we're seeing overall: patients treated with osimertinib had. Uh, lower um, rates of disease recurrence compared to placebo, but also we can see kind of in the placebo group, uh, we're seeing most of the recurrences come in lung, lymph node, um, CNS, and it's a similar pattern with the osimertinib, but just much less. And then this is a really important slide for me because as a medical oncologist, we often see these patients occur in the brain. And what osimertinib does so well is that it has really good blood-brain barrier penetration. And so we can see that, um, you know, there were patients, the CNS-DFS is better with the osimertinib group, so in blue. Um, you can see that the median CNS disease-free survival is not reached for osimertinib. Um, placebo not yet reached, but if you compare just the, you know, the two-year, the three-year, and the, the four-year landmark times, that those numbers look much better. Um, and we know that this is true in the metastatics uh, setting as well. So I think that this is going to be important as it continues to read out. And then, you know, you might ask, well, okay, sure, it's, it's better, but, you know, now you're sticking all these people on a therapy for an extra three years. What does that mean for us? Um, and I would say that, you know, the side effect profile for the most part is fairly tolerable. We do see diarrhea, but if you look at diarrhea, 47% um, is all grade, but actually grade three to four is low. Um, Paronychia, dry skin, pruritus, cough, um, a lot of these things kind of are there. And having given a lot of osimertinib, I would say that the patients, a lot of patients do have some complaints. Um, you know, the, the weight loss, the anorexia is sometimes an issue, and the, and the stomatitis. But these are all things that we're uh, mostly able to get them through. You know, we can give them different things to help them through it. Um, interstitial lung disease is, is something that we do look out for. And, um, you know, QTC prolongation is something else. We, I check um, EKGs and echoes uh, periodically on these patients. But, you know, overall, it's really well tolerated. Like compared to all of the other chemotherapies we yeah, give to. I was going to say compared to your... Yeah, very true. 
Uh, so the conclusions for Adora, so this was, after, this was the update after three years of the planned study treatment. There was a 77% reduction in risk of disease recurrence or death, right? So that hazard ratio was 0.23, really impressive numbers, uh, that 95% confidence interval. And the median DFS was 65.8 months in that osmertinib arm and 21.9 uh, in the placebo arm. Um, importantly, you know, there's an improvement seen regardless of whether or not they received adjuvant chemotherapy. This is a very kind of testy point with medical oncologists. You know, does this replace chemotherapy? No, I don't personally think so, but um, it's that is a question that we often get asked. You know, sometimes I forego it in earlier stage patients, but in my stage three patients, I'm still giving the chemotherapy. Um, and osimertinib demonstrated a clini clinically meaningful improvement in CNS um, disease-free survival. And kind of the safety profile from this adjuvant osimertinib was really similar to kind of the established safety profile of osimertinib. Kathy, yes. can I bring up one of the yeah, questions that was uh, placed, which I think is really appropriate at this yeah. time, because it has to do with chemotherapy. So, you know, there is a little bit of a mismatch between, you know, what's indicated for adjuvant systemic chemotherapy against the FDA approval and recommendations for adjuvant osimertinib. Yep. So how do you deal with that, you know, stage 1B patient who might not, you know, it has a tumor less than four centimeters and might not really be an adjuvant chemo patient yeah. or someone maybe who has kidney disease and yep. can't get Great adjuvant question. chemo? So I really think that um, these numbers are hard to argue with. So I do, I do tell my patients um, if they can't get adjuvant chemo, I usually still recommend the osimertinib because the osimertinib, like we just said, is just so much better tolerated. Um, I've also had patients who can only, you know, they can only get through two cycles of chemo and they're like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And then I'm, I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's move on to, to osimertinib. Um, and I think that it, it's a very good question about the 1Bs. Um, you know, a lot of times I think surgeons sometimes only send over four centimeters, but this is kind of a good reminder too that we were looking at 1B. So sometimes we're missing those, you know, three to four centimeter tumors. And um, it's, a, it's a discussion. Those are discussions I have with the patients. I say, look, there are some side effects of this drugs. So you have to be on it for three years, but these are the benefits that we have seen. Perfect. So let me ask you, Dr. Donington, there's a, there's a question from online. It says, when should surgeons discuss adjuvant osimertinib with patients and refer them to the oncologist, before surgery or after? I start the discussion with my patients before surgery. There's no doubt about it. I, I don't know, maybe I'm a bad surgeon. I hang the crepe early with my lung cancer patients. We are going to stage your mediastinum because we're worried that there's disease there. Why do we take lymph nodes in, at the case? Because I'm worried there's disease there and that you're going to need systemic therapy. I really, except for, you know, my really small tumors, you know, things two centimeters or less, I am really start that conversation early, that there's a really good chance you are going to need some kind of additional therapy, that surgery will not be enough to cure you. I also start this type of conversation early because we're doing so much more molecular testing. So patients want to know why. Why are you testing my tumor? Well, because I think you might need therapy. And if you're going to need therapy, I need to know what's going on in your tumor because it's not one size fits all anymore. And so I do start these conversations incredibly early. I do not refer most of my patients until the path is back. Some patients have questions that are beyond what I can answer, and those I will you know, refer before surgery. But otherwise, I usually do wait till uh, surgery's over, they get through all that, they're recovering, and mm -hmm. then they're, I think, a little more receptive. 
And sometimes this information may help you determine maybe new adjuvant studies that they could be eligible for. Absolutely. So yes, I do think that biomarker testing for anything more than a two centimeter peripheral tumor is really becoming essential before we operate. And I think we have to really add that to our workup. It's like staging, physiology, biomarker testing. And unfortunately, right now, that might be the hardest one. I think I can get a CPEP before I can get NGS done, which is like not really fair, right? <laughs> it takes a long time. It's still in my institution takes two weeks to complete our NGS. It's a long time. Yeah, ours, ours is about two weeks as well. All right, so I think we're going to move from here on to other trials in this area uh, with uh, the early uh, the EGFR patients in early stage disease. So some of you may have this trial open. This is the Neo-Adura trial. So it very much grows on what we learned from Adura, but taking the therapy into the neoadjuvant setting. So it is a pretty similar population to the Adura trial. It's stage two to three B. The one Bs have been left out of here. The same two EGFR mutations. And this time the resectable patients are randomized pre-op to receive either chemotherapy alone osimertinib alone or the chemotherapy plus osimertinib combination. They then go on to surgery and the primary endpoint of this trial is major pathologic response. They can go on to adjuvant therapy at the investigator's choice and secondary endpoints include past CR um, and event-free and overall survival. Um, this trial is a little challenging, but still kind of exciting. And it's just because, you know, the number of patients who are resectable that have these mutations can be challenging to find. It is a worldwide trial and not surprising. I think that's really essential for uh, any of our neoadjuvant targeted trials. Uh, a similar Adura trial actually takes the Adura trial to an earlier stage of disease. So looking to see whether adjuvant osimertinib, just like Adura, would be useful for stage 1A patients with high-risk features. So patients with stage 1A2 to 1A3, so not the one-centimeter tumors, but those larger than that, who've undergone a complete resection, have the EGFR19 or L858R mutations, uh, are, can go on to this trial. Um, they have to be in good health, obviously, and then they are randomized one-to-one -to, -one to the three years of osimertinib versus three years of placebo. Again, similar to Adura, it's a disease-free survival primary endpoint. Um, and this, again, is a worldwide trial. There's no doubt about it. Um, and then this is, again, looking at that population. Everyone here has to have had a biopsy in order to get on this trial. And I think, you know, at many of our institutions, not all these patients with these size tumors get a biopsy. But as we think about how our treatments are changing, it might be something we use more and more. Next, the LCMC4 or the LEADER trial. So, so far we've only talked about EGFR mutations, but I showed you that pie earlier with so many targets and so many agents. The problem is they're all pretty rare. They kind of fall into the two to 5% of lung cancer patients. So we do have this leader trial where you take resectable patients who have been biopsied and you find one of these mutations and then you can get, you know, shifted off to one of these trials. 
These trials, again, are tough, and that's just because the populations are small, and again, these have to really be nationwide efforts. You can see in the little um, map on the bottom all the different kind of places where this is available. Um, I've definitely put a patient or two on this mm -hmm. trial, um, but it's going to be a while till we uh, finish out some of these rare mutation uh, trials. And actually someone from the audience asks, what is the status of trials with other targeted therapies in resectable non-small cell lung cancer? Anything expected in the near future? Um, so I think these are still really reading out. Um, they're still accruing. Again, they are kind of very niche trials. Um, so it will be, I think, a little bit longer. But I'm, I've also put a few people on them and um, seen some really amazing responses. So hopefully they'll be able to uh, finish accrual. Right, and I do think as we biopsy and biomarker test more and more people, and part of that is because of the indications for immunotherapy, that we're going to pick up more of these mutations, yep. and I think that uh, accrual to these trials will pick up. There is also the Alchemist trial, which does have an ALK arm. It has been the slowest accruing of the arms, but it continues yep. to accrue. All right, so next we're going to kind of revisit that first case and also talk about some other cases. But kind of before I do that, I think the main takeaway I think that we really want to get across is that this is really a multidisciplinary game, um, you know, with a partnership with the medongs, the radiation oncologists, the surgeons, the pathologists. Um, I'm fortunate to work with a great multidisciplinary group. Actually, one of the surgeons I work with is sitting right there. Um, but, you know, this is really a partnership with, with us all, and I think um, that's, that's kind of the most important message. I agree. I think in lung cancer, we are going to have fewer and fewer patients who are treated by a single modality yep. as we move forward. It's just surgery is not enough to cure most of our patients, and so many of our more advanced patients can still benefit from local therapy. Absolutely. All right, so now we're going to go back to this first case. So remember, she's a 64-year-old. She was a never smoker. She had a 3.4-centimeter left upper lobe mass. We saw, the three, uh, we saw it was hot on PET, but there was no other site uh, of um, mediastinal or, or hilar lymph node. And she had a transbronchial biopsy of that left upper lobe mass. And she did, um, did not get mediastinal staging. I don't know if you want to... <laughs> um. but... So yeah, so I guess we, you know uh, this was a, a, a thought that I had when I saw this in my institution. A 3.4 centimeter mass would always get mediastinal staging, kind of no matter where it was. I don't know. Uh, we can look at his hands in the room. Is three centimeter a line for mediastinal staging, invasive mediastinal staging at your institution, regardless of the radiographic staging? So we'll tell the online audience a smattering of hands went up. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe about a quarter, yeah. So let's, let's move on. Let's Actually, I'm going to stop oh, yeah, here, Kathy, yes. and review one of the questions yes. that came up in, on the iPad, and that's yeah. whether we do our testing on the biopsy sample or the resection sample. How does it work in your institution? So our institution, we do a um, reflexive NGS testing based on whatever that sam first sample is. So... I mean, the nice thing about having a biopsy is that you can possibly put them onto these neoadjuvant trials. And, um, you know, now there's not only just the neoadjuvant targeted trials, we also have neoadjuvant immunotherapy trials. So it's, it's nice to, to do that. So we do the same. So if, if a patient gets a preoperative biopsy, we barely have a, a pretty reflexive panel and we do use an NGS. I kind of sometimes wish we would do maybe just the ones we can target, but yeah. that's not my decision. That's a... A plus minus time versus tissue is a yeah. very passionate question for the pathologist. Um, 
But um, patients who maybe didn't get a biopsy pre-op, then we do it on the resection specimen. I will tell you it's a bit easier to do it on that pre-op biopsy for several reasons. Um, the main one being reimbursement. The most of our biopsies, uh, our pre-op, are done as an outpatient. They go to IP, they go to IR, and they get a biopsy. And insurance will always pay for that. Um, once they're resected, you have to discharge the patient, and they need to be discharged for two weeks before you order the test. So that workflow is, it's clunky, it's not good, but that's what insurance pays for right now. Um, but that's where I think the ball can easily be dropped because you yep. know, 14 days after they leave the hospital, whose job is it? Who's yep. supposed to order that? Is it Kathy? Is it me? Is it the pathologist? I don't know. Um, is it the primary care doctor? So that's, um, that's one reason we do do our reflex testing. And then again, we're always looking for something we could target in yep. a trial early. Yeah, so sometimes that's how you get a patient onto, you know, the neoadjuvant electinib trial or the right. neoadjuvant, you know, that's how If you that's didn't look, you can't find yep. it. So I think that's important. Okay, so so we test her and she has an EGFR exon 19 deletion. So she actually went straight to the OR um, because, again, we just, she we thought she had a three centimeter mass. And she ended up getting the surgery and it showed a 4.4 centimeter invasive adenocarcinoma and extending into the visceral pleura, and it was you know, much more involved than I think we had thought originally. Uh, there were multiple lymph nodes involved, two level five, one level seven, and two bronchial. And she's ended up staged as a PT2BN2. One of the audience members did ask, how would you approach the management of patients with stage one to three EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer that is also strongly positive for pdl one Yeah, and that's a good question. Since we have a tezolizumab on here, I thought we could just address that for a second. Um, I typically do not give immunotherapy in patients with EGFR mutations. Um, they tend to be never smokers. The never smokers tend not to respond as well to immunotherapy. And there have been many studies that have looked at EGFR and um, immunotherapy. And it doesn't matter that that pdl one score in EGFR patients doesn't seem to correlate with response. So I would not do um, atezolizumab or any other PD-1, pdl one drug in this patient, um, but would go ahead with the OCR. And is there also a risk for pneumonitis if you kind of do one followed by the other? Yeah, so that's that's another good point. Yeah, if you do, if you decide that you want to do the immunotherapy and you didn't know that they had an uh, EGFR mutation and then later you find out and then you put them on the osomertinib, there is an increased risk for pneumonitis. So we do, these are all things that we have to kind of be, be careful about. But it goes to knowing in advance what your, what your mutation profile is before exactly. you start treatment. So anyway, so this patient ends up um, getting referred to medical oncology, and she undergoes four cycles of adjuvant cisplatin and pemetrexid. And again, this is because she's stage three. I, I do recommend that they get chemotherapy still. Um, and now she's undergoing her three years of adjuvant osomertinib, and she's doing really well. She gets routine scans. Everything's been fine. And she tolerates everything, you know, fairly well. She's, she's swimming like 20 laps a day, and she her main complaints are, uh, you know, some... Uh, nail brittleness and um, a little bit of fatigue, but really is doing remarkably well. Great. All right, I think we're going to move to another case. This is a patient of mine, and it's a little bit of an old case. It's a 2020 case, and there have been some things that have changed. So a 76-year-old, totally healthy, light smoker. Um, she has a history of a right upper lobe mass, which was uh, found on a workup for some chest discomfort. She's otherwise really healthy. She did have a history of breast cancer previously. 
um, but about a 10-pack year smoking history that was quite distant, quite interesting. She did have a daughter who died of uh, lung cancer diagnosed at the age of 33. Kind of scary to think about, you know, does she have some kind of germline mutation? Uh, she had a PET-CT which showed intense uptake in that apical mass and also showed a right hilar lymph node. Uh, she'd gotten an MRI to make sure this wasn't like a Pancos tumor, but it was clear of her artery and vein. And she had a needle biopsy. She came from one of my outside uh, community hospitals, uh, and this showed that she had an adenocarcinoma with an EGFR uh, L898R mutation. And she does, uh, despite having undergone a needle biopsy to start, she undergoes a bronch with EBUS, and she has, not surprisingly, a positive for our lo uh, lymph node. Her other stations, 4L7, were all negative. She gets her PFTs during that workup. They are exceptional. So she's a pretty healthy 76-year-old. Uh, she now has a stage 3A. She's fit. We know she has an EGFR mutation. She has single station N2 disease and a tumor that abuts the apical pleura. So we did decide on induction followed by resection. This was from one of my uh, outside hospitals where there's a very persuasive radiation oncologist. So it has been very challenging to part, to part with the induction radiotherapy. But we agreed upon uh, cisplatin premetrexid with concurrent radiotherapy uh, followed by resection. Uh, the five cycles is unusual, but the next slide might uh, explain that. She did really great during her therapy. She looked great, was walking and active every day. Um, these are post-induction films with the originals on top and the new ones on the bottom, and we saw some shrinkage of her tumors. Um, I also always restage people with PFTs and such, and we saw actually kind of a scary drop in uh, especially her diffusion capacity. And I think I do see this quite frequently in patients who get induction chemotherapy. Most of them do bounce back uh, with And she had radiation, time. too. And yeah. she had radiation, right. So I guess, I, I guess that point there being, it's one thing if you start at 100, it's another thing if you start at 50, you might want to recheck. Um, she actually got some bonus time because she represented to us, I don't know if you recognize that slide before, in kind of March of 2020 now, when they were closing down everything in Chicago. Um, and therefore, despite the fact that we wanted to take her back for surgery, we were told we could not take her to surgery, uh, and that we didn't know when we would be allowed to take elective uh, cases to the OR. So we referred her back to her medical oncologist who uh, tried to put her on osimertinib. She was not happy. <laughs> um, and so she came, waited and came back to see us. So at this point, she is 16 weeks from completion of her chemo radiotherapy. She, her performance status is still zero. Her shortness of breath is improved. And we are again looking at, is it OK to take her to surgery? It actually went fine. She wanted her tumor out. We told her we would take her a tumor out. I start all of these cases minimally invasively, and I go until I feel it is unsafe. And sometimes you go, and suddenly you're holding on to the specimen because you finished. And she was surprisingly one of those. So despite 60 gray of radiation, despite 16 weeks postoperatively, her case was pretty straightforward. And I think that's the, the lesson being that we don't know. Some of these are terrible. Some of them are not terrible. And we don't have good predictors of who that is. I did put an intercostal muscle flap because I trained at the Mayo Clinic. And you can't not do that. That's how we do it. Um, 
And her post-arth course was really quite unremarkable. It was a 3.5 centimeter tumor. Uh, she was not invading into the pleura or the chest wall. Um, and she, uh, none of her nodes were positive at this point. So she was a YP2AN0. So as a quick aside, you know, this, is, this talk is mostly on targeted therapies, but you operated on this woman after chemo and radiation, and um, she seemed like it went okay. I, w I know oftentimes now with neoadjuvant immunotherapy, people are talking about, you know, is the surgery more difficult? What, what would you say to that? I think after any induction trial, there's a good chance this is going to be a harder resection. And I don't know that it's particularly different with radiation, with immunotherapy, with targeted therapies to chemo. I think any time that you're seeing tumor response in lymph nodes, there is a good chance that this is not going to be easy. Okay. Yep. Uh, at the same time, I would say about a third of my post-induction therapies, we can do minimally invasively. Um, and some guys with the robot think that number is even higher. Uh, so again, I always start with it. I always start bats. I always talk to them about open because I know it's a much bigger chance than a regular kind of stage 1A. Um, and I don't feel guilty or bad if I have to get to an open procedure to do the operation. Great. Okay. All right. So let me talk about the third case. Yeah, just keep going. All right. Okay. So um, this is a case of mine recently. This was a 70, um, actually one of my colleagues, 71-year-old gentleman. He was in good health, um, presented with a new cough. And we saw on the workup, we saw this 5.8 by 5 centimeter right upper lobe mass abutting the mediastinal pleura. He has a 2.5 centimeter satellite lesion. And um, there's also right hilar lymphadenopathy. So we, we staged him clinically as a uh, T3N1. So EBUS performed negative at 4R, 4L, and 7, and 11R was consistent with adenocarcinoma. Um, so there was originally no molecular testing or pdl one performed. This was a, at an outside institution, and they didn't have the reflex. So um, the patient was sent to see a surgeon here, or at Columbia, um, who then uh, sent the patient to see us in medical oncology just to discuss induction therapy. Now, we had no idea that she would have EGFR mutation, but uh, the surgeon thought, you know, this is a pretty large tumor, pretty ugly, let me send to my med-on colleagues. So when he came to see us, um, we sent for molecular testing, uh, which revealed an EGFR L858R mutation. I actually, we have Neoadora open at Columbia, so I actually put the patient on Neoadora, but it's not available everywhere, but actually this patient went on. Uh, remember, there's a randomization to OC, OC plus chemo, and chemo. So the patient was randomized to neoadjuvant OC at 80, and you can see, um, so it's nine weeks of treatment, and the mass shrunk to uh, four and a half centimeters. The satellite lesion significantly decreased. Um, and the surgeon was able to take him to surgery. Um, the surgeon did note severe fibrosis from the induction therapy. So, you know, that's important because it's, I'm saying it's not, we're not just seeing that with immunotherapy or just seeing that with, right? Like we, we see this, it's not, a, it's not a fresh clean lung anymore, but the patient tolerated the procedure well with minimal blood loss. Um, her post-op, his post-op course was complicated by AFib. Um, but patient did really well, and the final pathology showed a three and a half centimeter tumor, negative margins. The hilar node was still affected, 
18 lymph nodes examined. So um, certainly the patient still needs adjuvant treatment and is now on um, adjuvant osimertinib. All right, so we actually have a lot of great questions that have been submitted. Maybe we'll start from the top and go down. So it says, how often is EBUS insufficient for molecular testing? That is really institution dependent. I'm sure the ACCP can give us some data on real live numbers. It is less and less. I think that we are all getting better at EBUS, both us as surgeons and the IP doctors. And that concept, if you have rows and you get into a tumor and you know you have it, doing the appropriate number of passes so that we can have it. The other place where advancements are being made is in pathology. They are getting much better at working with smaller and smaller specimens. That being said, if I have an adenocarcinoma patient who has had a biopsy on the outside or even with our own hands and we have insufficient tissue, I will send that patient for an additional biopsy. There's no doubt about it. Yep, I agree. Um, what is the discontinuation rate for osimertinib? You know, in the... Adura, it was very small, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, in the metastatic trials, it's probably like 15% as discontinuation rate. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's fairly small. I mean, most patients are able to tolerate it. And I sometimes do dose reduce if they can't tolerate the 80 milligrams. But I thought it was above 90% in the Adura trial completed their three years. I do not know the number I, off the top of my head. Yeah, I think it's a surprisingly high number. All right, it says, for large hyalur tumors we're treated with pre-op systemic therapy and have dramatic response seen on PET, what are your intraoperative steps to assess whether pneumonectomy can be avoided? I think for patients who do have that dramatic response, it's you and you see the tumor, sometimes the tumors shrink into the hilum and sometimes they shrink back into their lobe. I think you try and do your lobe and you try to do, you know, take it out. I mean, do I send more frozens and stuff like that? Yes. I and mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I have done, since the advent of the immunotherapies, I've definitely done more uh, PA plasties than I've ever done before. And I send that margin off. And if the margin's negative and there's no tumor in that specimen, I'm done. All right. We only have a few more seconds left. So does anyone else in the room have a question or should we... If not, I will um, read one more here. Um, in the metastatic setting, liquid biopsy is frequently used. What about an early stage non-small cell lung cancer? And could it have a role in biomarker testing also? Um, or is tissue-based testing better? So this is a great question. I mean, a tissue, a liquid biopsy is, is a great resource. I'm mostly still using it in the metastatic setting. So I would say tissue is always your gold standard. Um, we always need tissue because liquid biopsy also doesn't give us pathology. So I always start with that, but certainly liquid biopsy is getting more and more use. But you also can't get a PDL one on a liquid biopsy. Yep. Yep. Also, the sensitivity for early stage disease is not yep. there yet. It is exactly. getting there. I think within the next five years, we're going to see more cell-free DNA and liquid biopsy use in early stage disease, but it, the sensitivity is not there right now, not even for stage three. Okay. So I think, I we think we're at the end. I thank you all for being such a great audience, yeah. both live and online, the great questions. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GQW860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.